Welcome to the Not Bane podcast, your weekly rundown of UK politics from a black millennial view. Every Sunday, join Corey and me, Bay, your resident centre lefty, as we look at Parliament, the headlines and stories from across the pond and the diaspora. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Not Bame podcast. Apologies for our lateness this week. Corey was ill, so we had to push it back a few days, but we're here with our regularly scheduled rundown. Today, we're going to be covering PMQs, footballers kneeling, unlawful um, offering of contracts by Michael Gove, the cutting of the foreign aid budget, and Nigeria's Twitter ban. So let's get into it. So as ever, I'm kicking off this week with a review of Prime Minister's questions. This week, the leader of the opposition got up before pressing the Prime Minister on on an important issue of the day, felt the need to congratulate him on his recent wedding and followed that up with also congratulating him on managing to keep it secret, although it wasn't kept secret because it was reported the day after. Anyway, at that point, I checked out and that is the end of my review of this week's Prime Minister's questions. Um, what exactly do you mean? That's the end of your prime minister's questions. Because I I gave up. Like, like what 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 the hell is it? What 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 the hell is that? Like, okay, okay, right. So you're gonna congratulate him on on his wedding. I mean, okay, fine. Yeah, I guess you got to be civil. But then you know, the silly fawning and trying to crack a joke about. Ooh, <laughs> I I like how the prime minister kept it secret. Like, what what the hell are you doing, bro? Like, no. And I was done. And you know what? Capped it off when Boris Johnson got up to answer the question which was about his uh, screw-ups with regards to ed- uh, the catch the school's catch-up program for kids who have missed out on a lot of schooling due to the pandemic when he got yeah. up to actually answer that question which Keir Starmer finally got around to asking him he didn't even acknowledge the congratulations he didn't even say I'd like to thank the honorable member for the right honorable member for for his congratulations he didn't even acknowledge it so yeah I gave up I gave up it was just a joke it's a joke it's a joke I gave up I was done so sorry okay. no review this week Okay, I mean, that's great um, that you found that irritating. However, I mean, maybe the people would like to know what Boris Johnson's response to the question about um, children's catch-up was. Do you have any feedback on that? Or you just were like, no, I mean, I personally like to hear about Ian Blackford. I mean, you've got the scorecard going on. So if you're like completely like wiping out the rounds, then what is the point of the scorecard? I thought you were going to do a, a roundup at the end of the parliamentary session. Yeah, we can pick up pick up the scorecard next week when hopefully your boy Keir acts like a leader of the opposition and actually, you know, comes oh. up and stands up and presses and asks some serious questions. He's not my boy, first of all. And I'm glad that it's not only me who recognises that he needs to potentially pull his finger out. Otherwise, he might not be here much longer but you know and we're all still waiting for this uh well, I mean, forensic okay okay we can yeah okay, let's... the opposition where's this quote unquote qc technique that we're gonna see from the great care you know human rights defender head of the dpp putting kids in jail for six months for stealing rice you know Listen, where's that guy he no i I mean, I have no dog in this fight, so I just, I know you have a, a thing. I don't have a dog in the fight. I didn't say you I have a dog in the... I just said you had a thing. No, he, he does... No, thing. some weeks he does do well. No, he does do well. This whole forensic thing, I think it fit. It, it, it's it's fair because there are weeks... That we Most of the weeks that we've been... That I've been covering privacy questions, I've given it to him as, as, as taking the win. Because, he, yeah, he's done he's done okay. I mean, 
granted, it's pretty easy. A lot of the times okay. it's open like, goals. Let's, exactly, but let's has, be honest. But he has, he has, in my opinion, watching as he goes through his six questions every week, most of mm-hmm. the time I've been watching, he does do a decent job of pressing. But as I said, I just, I just got fed up. Marcus Rashford. I'm one minute in. Children of and he's, though, didn't it? He couldn't manage it, all that pressing that he was doing. One minute in, and he's cracking jokes about how you know, cracking jokes like that. They're all boys anyway. Like this faux um, opposition stuff. All their men are together at spectator garden party anyway. So, well, I'll continue next week. I will. Mm, I'm sure you will. You better. So, moving swiftly on for our first topic this week, we are going to be talking about the brouhaha regarding. The footballers taking the knee before the start of games in solidarity with racial justice. Um, we've seen over the past uh, past little while, especially with the FA Cup recently, and then as the Euros started, uh, players just before the start of games, they will take the knee a la Colin Kaepernick and what he started to do about six years ago in the NFL in America. And there has been booing from a lot of uh, England fans. Um, other fans have applauded. Imagine booing your own home team. Mm-hmm. At the start of the European football thing. Well, any team. I mean, any match. Any match. No, your home team, fam. Suppose, mm. I'm assuming that you want them to win mm. and you're booing them because they're carrying out a fairly benign anti-racism gesture? Yeah. Really? Okay, great. I mean, it's, it's interesting you use the word gesture. Um, <clears throat> I was going to leave this a little bit later, but uh, Pretty Patel, everybody's favourite oh, home yes. secretary. Your favourite? Please, please, God no. Anyway, she no, chimed don't in. Pretend now. That's she your chi- fave. She chimed in, um, talking about gesture politics and you know, castigating footballers for for, for engaging in gesture politics. Um, what's so interesting to me is that she said, you know, that they shouldn't take the knee, they shouldn't engage in gesture po- politics, but um, fans are within their rights to boo or not. Are the footballers not within their rights to engage in gesture politics or not? Or what's I don't. Come on, I mean, do the. I mean, you know what? It's pretty Patel. So really, me even all of this, you know, indignation. There's no point. I'm just a waste of my time. You're right. Um, I mean, yes, insofar as it shouldn't be a surprise that it's her saying it. But I think yeah. there is value in interrogating this idea because it's not just her who holds it. This idea of you know gesture politics or or virtue signaling. To me, these are just meaningless phrases because what Absolutely. is a what good is a virtue that is not signaled? A virtue is exactly. not a virtue. By definition, a virtue is something good. So, should yes. something good not be signaled Signal. and promoted? That's and, how you encourage and... other people to also engage in that virtue. And like, let's not pretend that the virtue signaling is limited to you know the left or the right. Virtue signaling pervades every part of society. You know, virtue signaling is opening. I don't know a children's home um, run by a church. That's is that not a virtue signal? Well, I mean, come on. Like you said, it's just all culture war shenanigans and everybody wants to back their side. Yeah. And, and I mean, and in back of it, and in backing their side, when someone is coming out against anti racism. And we shouldn't be surprised that politicians will just jump on the bandwagon for anything. But I think it is pretty disgusting what you're seeing from a lot of, especially ministers right now, especially Oliver Dowden, who's the culture, mm-hmm. the culture, culture, media and sports secretary. So he's his portfolio covers sports. Um, you know, he he is not <laughs> it, 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 a week doesn't go by where he's not in the news for capitalizing on some latest 
iteration of the culture wars, whether Absolutely. he's putting pressure on museums to to do to, to to fit in with a government line on something, whether he's you know joining in with the the pile on on the national trust because you know they've they've embraced wokeism or whatever the hell that means. You know, he's well... back in the news this week with this. A, a similar story, not quite the same, um, but with uh, the England cricket team. So one of the one of the new England cricket players, uh, some tweets surfaced from about eight years ago when he was eighteen. Um, but you know, racist and sexist tweets. He was you know saying things about Muslims. He was saying things about Asian people. Uh, he was saying things about women. Uh, there was another tweet where he he used the N word. <clears throat> and I guess we can debate whether he should have been suspended by England or not for these tweets from from then. But why does a government minister, a secretary of state, chime in and exactly. say that? He, you know, what? Why does he why, have to tweet yeah. and say that the England cricket board have gone over the top? But again, because they keep, they just, they're, they're almost, they're getting like, they're getting like American, they're getting like Republicans. They really are, it it's, is. in the sense that trying to constantly latch onto whatever the latest iteration of the culture wars are, instead of doing their job. It's like the picture of the Queen last week. It's you know, why are government ministers? Why is the government? Why is the national press? getting super, like so involved in the minutiae of um, the inner workings of um, a cricket team. Like, what's it got to do with you? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. how does it affect us on a day-to-day basis? It doesn't. He's issued an apology. They're going to investigate to make sure that those views didn't spill out into how he was treating his co-workers or his behaviour within the team and keep it moving, really. It, what, like you said, why is somebody with an office of the state... Um, getting involved in culture wars why are you talking about the common room in a graduate students in a graduate students um student union like why are we talking about whether a picture is on the wall or not are you joking me you're talking about this on the radio it's on the front page of the daily mail which is the most read um newspaper i think in this country Um, so like you said again all of this is to obfuscate from the how many people are dying from covid and how the government is generally doing a poor job. But if we get caught up in cultures and we're not talking about anything else. Yeah, I mean, again, it's really sad, isn't it? Well, it depends on your perspective. You know, mm-hmm. these are supposed to be conservative ministers. Why are conservative ministers, people who are supposed to believe in limited state intrusion, you are a secretary of state mm-hmm. and you're getting involved in what the decisions of the England cricket board or some students at an Oxford college or, you know, some footballers on a field. Are you not supposed like <clears throat> isn't isn't a guiding principle of their politics supposed to be a limited state intrusion p- on period? This is do what you want. I mean, if, the law. is yeah. this not big government? To me, it's, it's big. Government. massive government. The government overreach at this point is astounding. Can you imagine if a Labour government was telling universities what they can and can't say, university students what they can and can't do? Can you, like, the headlines would be insane. Marxist, Leninist, Trotsky, it's, uh, you know, engaging in McCarthyism and they're trying to get their hands on all the university students. They're, They're trying to get in our schools to raise up a new red wave. (laughs) <laughs> that's what would be happening right now like you can already see it because yeah. we've been there before talking about nationalizing sausages that would be the situation that we would be in and yet this is, and this is the issue it's not the issue like yes i might not agree with their politics overall my issue with the conservative party is that they do not undergo uh, the level of scrutiny that is put towards the opposition party which is nowhere near even in power 
they're not undergoing any scrutiny whatsoever. There is a failure from the media, there is a failure from the state broadcaster, there's a failure from the opposition parties to properly hold this government to account, or generally successive um, Tory governments to account. They're playing politics on easy mode. It's ridiculous. One thing I would say, though, um, I do like um, <clears throat> the Sunday Times at the moment, what they're doing. Every week, mm. they're on their neck, uh, which they is are. a bit of a surprise, considering the spec, you know, where they are. I mean, <clears throat> there are other issues, you know, Brexit and fallouts over Brexit and whatever, whatever. So there are, there are, there are reasons why they, they seem to be more aggressive towards the government right now. But as a traditionally right-wing paper, they are very much uh, keeping their foot on the government's neck. Each week, I there's something new that they're right reporting. Pardon? A right wing? No, the paper is a traditionally right. You're traditionally right wing. I, I, I mean, I know you're trying to, to. I'm not trying to anything. I think this would be a good point to move on. <laughs> Indeed. So, why don't you introduce our next topic? Moving on and continuing to wade into the Tory party sleaze. A court has found that Michael Gove acted unlawfully and outside the tender process in awarding Dominic Cummings market research firm a company contract for £500,000. The ruling said that it gave rise to bias and was unlawful. They, they failed to identify or consider any other research agency. The Cabinet Office has refused to investigate and has claimed Michael Gove was not involved in the decision-making of the contract. Now, whether he was or wasn't, it can be like this. And I think this was actually explained really well by the, one of the lawyers from the Good Law Project, where he said, it might not have been explicit, but you know, if you're working for the civil service under Michael Gove and you want to do well in your job, and he says his friends got a company and they're going out to tender and he introduces you to this person. Then they put in their tender. What do you do? Do you not give them the tender or do you give them the tender in the hopes that this doesn't lead to any sort of reprisals from your boss or you don't and you never move up or you know, you're shuffled out or you're found you know, the top of the list for a redundancy. So I think it's a bit disingenuous for the cabinet office to say that, you know, I mean, we don't, I don't know if I believe them or not, but it's disingenuous to say that just because no explicit instructions were given, things cannot be implied, especially with, from somebody in such a position of power. I mean, in a regular friend group or situation, when somebody recommends you somebody and you look at it and it seems okay on the service, you generally go with that person, do you not? That's how things work. And when somebody is in a position of power over you, that skews the scales exponentially. I think it's interesting. Um, you're saying that the cabinet um, office, they've they decided not to uh, to investigate Invest it. Correct. Um, interesting, given Michael Gove's sorry, Michael Gove's uh, actual title, his role. Um, mm. do, do, do you know what that is? I'm sure you're going to tell me. Yes, He's minister for the cabinet office, so it's his direct portfolio. Oh my goodness! No way did Michael Gove decide not to investigate himself. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. It was probably some civil servants who made that decision, mm. not necessarily again. Gove. And like I said, again. What do you do if you work for Michael Gove in the cabinet office and Michael Gove puts in front of you, hmm, do you, do you think that I deserve to be investigated for this? Yes, boss, I'm going to investigate you immediately. I can't wait. It's going to be great. I mean, let everybody shine their eyes, please. 
let, let's be realistic because everybody's acting like, like no one's got any common sense. Again, it's just like I said, the Tories are playing politics on easy mode. A government minister has been found to have acted unlawfully and there are no consequences. He's not being moved to the back bench. He's not being suspended from the party. Things are just carrying on as normal. Imagine if Diane Abbott was found to have given her <laughs> mate a tender to a company contract. She would be strung up in the courts, let alone in the court of public opinion. Guido would have, you know, 60 different memes of her with her head posted on how many different bodies. It would be on all the front page news from front to back. We'd be talking about it on Andrew Marr. We'd be talking about it on GB News, you know. So again, like I said, everyone needs to shine their eyes because this is getting, frankly, ridiculous. I mean, Auntie Diane can't even take a little sip of a drink on a tube without the, the nation grinding to a halt, so... Having to issue an apology <laughs> for having a tinny on the overground. So, yeah, um, so I think we know the answer to that question. But, I mean, you seem to... Uh, <laughs> I don't know, I just feel like a broken record now. It's interesting you yeah, say... exactly. You, you talk about, like, consequences, like... We know now there are no, there are no, you are, you're rewarded for failure even today. Um, and this is the one benefit of us recording a day late. So, you know, we've caught the start of this week's news. Um, and I, and I, <clears throat> I note your, your little insinuation that I wasn't actually ill over the weekend. Not that you weren't actually ill, but it was, you were given a vibe of man flu and I hate to, you know, gender sickness, but you know, there is, yeah. Mm, okay. Yes. Anyway, as I was saying. <laughs> Because we're recording a day late, we've, we've caught the start of this week's news cycle and um, there are rumblings now. The, the Speaker of the House is not very happy with Boris Johnson. Um, there are there are suggestions that he's he's accusing him. Well, no, not suggestions. He's accusing him of misleading the House, um, which is a serious, um, not offence, uh, a serious issue. Um, I mean, but again, oil's toothless, so, but carry on. But again, I mean, I read that and I was and I was like, oh, okay, cool. It's, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that should warrant a consequence is it well we know that's not going to happen like there are no consequences if anything you're you are rewarded for failure with this Absolutely. current government right pretty patel was sacked by david cameron because she was caught doing dodgy dealings as international um or, or hmm, she was caught allegedly to be starting dodgy dealings i gotta pass my words because i ain't trying to get sued anyway she was sacked right. by cameron all right as mm -hmm. devel uh, international uh, Sec development secretary she comes back as Home Secretary. Amber Rudd was um, forced to resign over the Windrush scandal under, and then as Home Secretary, but then probably not not even two years later. I don't even think it, I think it was just over a year later she's back in the cabinet. And this is three four years ago. This is when things weren't even as bad as they are now. Failure is rewarded and incompetence is not punished. End of story. So hey. Again, broken. I feel like a broken record because yeah, me too. It's you see, and you know what? This is part of it. Is eventually this the uh, sleaze, the corruption, the cronyism. It all becomes boring, and I think this is where them. I don't. I hate to bring up you know Trump, but I think they have learned a lot from his playbook. Whereas if you just ignore it, mm -hmm. who's gonna check me, boo? Nobody. Yeah. I'm in power. I can do what I want. Just keep going. Just keep going until the wheels fall off. You, what you do is, uh, and this was this was the one area where Trump was actually a, let me not say genius, 
Competent, competent, because he was incompetent everywhere else. But one area, what what he knew what he was doing was marketing. He knew that as long as he just kept having, as long as there was something new every single day, whatever yeah. happened yesterday gets forgotten. New, as long as there's new drama, you can't every even day. Keep up. You can't absolutely. keep up. And then people just get tired, correct. people get bored, people get sick of it. People are like, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's them. All right, cool. It's Tuesday. Suddenly, it's just, it's Tuesday. Yeah. So for our final foray into domestic affairs this week, we are going to be discussing the government's decision to cut aid spending, which is currently set at 0.7% of national income. They're going to be cutting it to 0.5%. Um, in real terms, that means a four billion pounds reduction in aid spending, uh, spending by the UK government. Um, it provoked. I ended last week's show by bemoaning the fact that there are never any like where are the where are the backbench rebellions? The only recent mumblings of rebellions that we've seen are re with regards to Tory MPs who have gone against the government who, who, who wants to go against the government in terms of lockdown restrictions you know the ones who are from the more libertarian angle of the party they want things opened up today and forever mm -hmm. but apart from that nobody's ever rebelling about anything and I'm like if we have no opposition we have no press do we not even have some backbenchers on the government's benches to rebel well this week my prayers were answered Sadly, sadly, it went nowhere, but at least they tried. And it was in relation to this story. So you had a few backbenchers, including the most prominent amongst them being the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, who is still in Parliament as a backbencher. She um, she gave quite a rousing speech. We'll link it in the show notes. And she she really came down hard on the government She because she's very against this reversal in aid spending. She doesn't want the government to be cutting aid spending, especially at a time like this. Um, and she gave quite a powerful speech. There were other others in there who were criticising. Uh, another one who was criticising was somebody who had direct oversight over this kind of spending. And that was uh, Andrew Mitchell, who used to be the Conservative uh, Secretary of State for International Development, um, and he was also very um, adamant, adamantly against this cut. So I guess I got my wish granted a little bit. You know, we had a bit of a bit of a backbench rebellion, a bit of balls being, you know, what's the phrase? Anyway, we had, yeah, yeah. Anyway, what do you think? Um, like I was saying to you earlier, I am not specifically against cutting foreign aid. Not because, you know, I don't think we should be giving foreign aid. I just do think, like I said, it's, it is a tool of soft power. It is not purely benevolent giving. It's so the countries that we're giving to, giving to will, you know, push through whatever it is that we want from them, whether it's favourable terms on trade deals, whether it's taking um, trade that we don't, we have surplus of, whether it's supporting political parties and you know funding money into that and it's not not just struggling countries that are getting foreign foreign aid extremely developed countries with their own nuclear arsenals are also receiving foreign aid and not to bleat on about the point of we should deal with our problems at home first we should deal with our problems at home not that we should deal with our problems at home first but this is a government that says that we don't have enough money for free school meals the, the math is not mathing, but I don't believe that they're going to bring this money from foreign aid and pump it into something else. I absolutely do not believe that for a second. So I'm not being naive and I'm not saying that we shouldn't provide aid um, in lieu of feeding the children. I think we have more than enough money to do both and pretending that we don't have more than enough money to, is, um, to do both is disingenuous. 
my point is foreign aid is soft power and we should be um, having a little bit more oversight into where that money is going um, what regimes it's supporting, what political policies it's supporting in those countries as well. It's not just educating, you know, girls in hard to reach places. Like, let's, that's not just what it is. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned about girls' education because as a result of cutting the aid, right, um, there are reports that there'll be a 25% cut in the, the girls' education spending globally so i think it is still uh, no i i think i think the me personally i think the positive i think the positives outweigh the the other not so favorable parts of it and yes there should be greater scrutiny on where money sent to absolutely and how it's spent and all that but i just don't think that justifies cutting cutting the aid um you know there's there's it's reportedly you know 10 million people will lose uk support for clean water provision 250,000 people across the world are at risk of starvation each week, apparently, as a result of the, it will be as a result of this, this, this cut. Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, we had the G7 meeting this week, when it comes to G7, at the moment, the UK is right at the top of the list in terms of aid spending amongst the G7. Once these cuts are put in, it's going to be near the bottom. Um, and yeah, it's not about just clout and being better than the rest, because that was one okay. of the arguments. That was one of the arguments that Theresa May tried to raise in, in Parliament. She was like, you know, <clears throat> this will reduce the UK standing. It's about global Britain. And to me, I don't think that's important. But obviously, she said what she said. For me, it's more about the, the, the hard, the pounds and the pence that are not going to be going to many, many worthy causes around the world. And if yes, it's a pandemic, but we're the fifth richest country in the world. We can't afford to maintain 0.7% aid spending, then, then what's the point? Um, sure. Six I don't, inches, sorry. I don't, I don't think I 100% agree with you on that. I think for instance, um, we give foreign aid to Yemen where there is a humanitarian and hunger crisis going on, but we also supply the bombs that are bombing them into oblivion so that they have no access and so no and, the, and it's um, contributing to blockade so food can't actually get in so instead of you know providing aid maybe if we didn't consistently destabilize um regions there would not be the need for the foreign aid in the, the first place and i know that you know political aims people are not going to stop selling weapons and people are not going to stop bombing places but i think to me that's a better approach if we don't create the situations where aid is required in the first place then we wouldn't be we wouldn't need to do all of this yes uh, that's a, a a valid argument of course um i think what was interesting with this though is and as i said i'm i'm very happy that there was a an attempted rebellion and so this was the prime minister refused to put this to a vote and he actually would have lost the vote because there would have been enough opposition within the Conservative Party, even though he's got an 80 strong majority. Obviously, all of the opposition parties would have also voted against it. And there would have been a healthy amount of Conservative backbenchers who would have voted against it, too. And um, <laughs> Andrew Mitchell, basically, in response to the prime minister refusing to put it to a vote, said the executive is accountable to parliament. And that applies in all circumstances, whether the executive is being run by King Charles I or Boris Johnson. I was like, okay, okay, ballsy, invoking a former king who was decapitated. Interesting. Anyway, Ooh. yes. <clears throat> but um, hopefully it's a sign of things to come. Hopefully there'll be more and more rebellions 
and and more and more checks on a, a wayward government, in my opinion. This week's Across the Pond, we are going down to Nigeria and we are going to be discussing the ban. The Nigerian government have banned Twitter. Uh, June the 4th this year, they banned Twitter. Um, they made it, I was going to say they made it illegal. Um, however, the Attorney General of Nigeria cannot actually point to a specific law um, with which people would be prosecuted. But for all intents and purposes, and purposes, it is illegal to use Twitter in Nigeria right now. Um, of course, people are getting around it, um, thankfully, by using VPNs, similar to what Why people do in, in China. I mean, I'm, I, it's not. I think they know that people are using VPNs. I'm That's not snitching. snitching. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not they're like doing I, it by, they're doing it by magic. Okay. You, oh, no one knows now. oh, is that right? Okay, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's however, they're doing it. Thankfully, people are managing to skirt this ridiculous um, invasion of essentially free speech because that's essentially what it is this is in response to quite a few things over the last few months in nigeria um most recently where there were you know a lot of criticism being being leveled at the government's feet and a lot of it being being spread on twitter and hey they don't like it you know authoritarianism is going to authoritarian authoritarian is this this <laughs> I get what you were trying to say. Authoritarians yeah. are going to be authoritarians, is what I should have said. Yes. Um, and that's essentially what this is. Um, you know, there, aside from the the democratic side of it, aside from the moral side of it, there's there's also an economic hit. You know, Nigeria is the most populous um, country in Africa. You know, mm -hmm. over 200 million people. An emerging um, tech hub as well. Indeed. So this is projected to cost the Nigerian economy six million dollars a day. Um, this ban alone is, is is projected to cost that, um, you know. So as I said, not to mention the the invasion of privacy, people's free freedom, people to people to just literally just go onto the internet and say what they feel. Um, I also think that a lot of this, I think they've been emboldened by this. And again, Absolutely. I am not one to ever take up for. Western governments lecturing African countries and South American countries and, and, and South Asian countries, never. However, after what we saw last year, um, the end of last year, with the protests against police brutality in Nigeria, there was not much, there was very, very limited, if any, criticism by foreign governments. And mm -hmm. undoubtedly, that will have emboldened the government to take these steps. I'm not saying well, they wouldn't have done it. That, I'm not um, saying they wouldn't have done it if they did receive criticism for, for, mm. for what happened. Um, but I'm sure that played a part of it. You know, they saw that they got away with that. And it's like, well, we can do this too. I will say that some MPs did uh, push back in Parliament. They did talk, bring up in Parliament about what was going on with NSARS. And they um, actually, I think they asked the government about if whether they were supplying police training and weapons to mm -hmm. the police force in Nigeria as well. I mean, it's also funny. I mean, they announced on Twitter that they were banning Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not very, it's not a logical step. Like, let's think it's a very young nation. They're very online. They are, um, this is how, this is how they press their government. Like, let's, to be honest, this is how a lot of the population press their governments. This is how we have access to um, government ministers where you'd usually be sending them an email and, you know, someone may or may not respond and yes it's not necessarily them but you can some somewhat gauge not the public mood but you can gauge a part of the public's mood from their interactions with you online 
you know, Rishi Sunak was on Clubhouse. So let's not pretend that all these different online social media networks are not a way to interact with the populace. So it makes it quite clear that they don't want to interact with the populace. They're not interested in hearing what anyone's got to say. They want sycophancy or they want nothing. And it's unlikely to last. Um, there are there are some insinuations that it's also partly just a, a little bit of a petty squabble with Twitter because Twitter earlier this year announced that they were going to be placing their African headquarters in Ghana, not in Nigeria. So there's suspicion whether it's, you know, something, whether that plays into it also. But also already we're on June the 14th now, this happened on June the 4th. Already they are said to be in talks with Twitter uh, about this. So there's probably going to be a reversal. It's probably similar to what's happening in other parts of the world when it comes to authoritarian regimes, you know, leaders sort of testing the water, testing what they can get away with um, as part of maybe some longer term strategy. And I think yeah. that's that's the that's probably the, the most important lesson out of this, not the fact that they've banned Twitter, because, as I said, they will probably reverse that soon enough. It's why they're doing it and it's whether it's part of some long term strategy and what that long term strategy is. My thought of the week is going out to dear John Reed, who was chased and stabbed to death in Birmingham after being racially abused by a group of people. Um, he was 14 years old. Six people have been arrested. I believe four of them were adults. At the moment, you know, obviously it's pending investigation and um, court cases and all the rest of it. But I just want to say, you know, this happened um, a few weeks ago and it seems to have dropped out of the public consciousness already but a child was attacked by four grown adults and was racially abused and I want to know how we got here what is going on what that any that any adults are um encouraging children because children were involved as well to engage in violence I mean we know it happens but encouraging children to engage in violence and also engaging in violence against children it's absolutely ridiculous you know, this family has lost a son and a brother and a friend. And, you know, so my uh, condolences go out to them. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NotBamePod. That's N-O-T-B-A-M-E pod. If you've got a comment or a suggestion for a future show, email us, notbamepod at gmail.com. And if you're listening on iTunes, give us five stars.